0: One through seven of Philemon. If you're having a hard time finding it, know that I am too. So, for whatever reason, just one of those that's easy to miss. Philemon, beginning of verse one. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. To Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Athy, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. Lord, we know that every word that is penned in Scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness so that we would all be fully equipped to fulfill all that You've commanded us to do. And I pray that You would use Your Word in Paul's letter to Philemon, that You'd use this Scripture to transform us, to shape us. Lord, you know the various needs each one has, where they need to be encouraged and comforted, strengthened. Lord, you know Lord, how our minds need to be shaped and transformed and corrected. And I pray that you would use your word to bring about its full purpose in our lives. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Well, this morning we're going to commence on a very short sermon series on the book of Philemon. It'll just be two weeks, actually. Um, And so I've broken up the letter into two sections, uh, which is uh, basically Paul's uh, appreciation of Philemon, which we'll look at in the verses ahead of us today. And then next week we'll look at uh, verses 8 through 25, where Paul makes his appeal to Philemon. And the heart of the letter, the main emphasis of the letter, really is in that second section, which we'll look at next week. Uh, The verses that we'll look at this morning really is an introduction to the letter, to the body of that letter. And it's here that Paul expresses his appreciation for Philemon. And I've highlighted three areas or three things that he appreciates or sees a value in Philemon. His love and faith, the sharing of his faith, And his effect on others. And I think it's worth asking ourselves as we uh, begin to look at this personal letter. if, If Paul were to write us a personal letter and to express his appreciation of us, what might he say he appreciates? What value or benefit are we to the other members of the body of Christ? Well, if you're a Christian, you know you've been blessed with spiritual gifts. That was clear in the scripture reading we saw earlier in 1 Corinthians 12. And those gifts have been given to you in order to help build up the other members of the body of Christ. And they will be useful in that endeavor. Again, just like every body part that we have has a purpose. Likewise, every member of the body of Christ has a purpose. And when it functions according to that purpose... The rest of the body is benefited. So what do you think your fellow brothers and sisters here value or appreciate about you? How is it that you serve the rest of the body? The first thing Paul appreciates about Philemon, he notes, is his love and faith in Christ. But before he mentions this, he specifically identifies both the author and and the audience who is writing and to whom he is writing. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. Paul notes that he he and Timothy are the authors of the letter here. And he specifically calls himself a prisoner of or for Christ Jesus. Uh, I think it's a possessive genitive. That's how it's translated in the new american standard bible that is he's a prisoner of christ he's christ's prisoner and the the point being he's not there because he's some victim of the roman oppression or even of the jews persecution he's a prisoner because he belongs to christ if he hadn't served christ he and if christ didn't want him there he wouldn't be there and therefore he's not ashamed of his imprisonment in his current circumstances he's Content, he writes in Philippians, he's learned in whatever situation he's in to be content. And the Apostle Peter likewise says that if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. A good reminder that God directs our lives however he chooses. Sometimes he's going to choose to bless us. Sometimes he's going to allow us to go through significant trials. But the point is we can trust him even in the inconveniences or the trials of life because he's sovereign. He's put us where he's put us. Note also the audience to whom he writes. You know, obviously he's writing to Philemon, but notice more than just Philemon, he also mentions Athia and Archippus and the church that meets in his house. Now, Philemon is the primary recipient. That's why he's noted first. Uh, We know that he was one of Paul's converts because this is mentioned in verse 19. And he was also clearly a key figure within the church of Colossae. Paul calls him a fellow laborer. And that's a term that he apparently reserves just for elders. The only other people in Scripture that receive this distinction are Titus, Timothy, Epaphroditus, and another man named Urbanus, who's mentioned in Romans 16.9. And Philemon was apparently, sorry, he was apparently quite wealthy. And we know this because the church is actually meeting in his house. I mean, even if the church of Colossae were only the size of grace and truth, I mean, just think, you've got to have a pretty big house even to accommodate a hundred people. And his wealth, I think, is also indicated by the fact that he owned slaves. Onesimus, the main focus of this letter, being one of them. Paul also notes, though, Apphia and Archippus. Most likely this is his wife, Philemon's wife, and his son. And I think that is because they are specifically identified. Uh, Moreover, um, if they were members of Philemon's household, they would have a direct interest in his appeal to Philemon regarding the runaway slave Onesimus. You also might recall from our study in uh, Colossians that we ended just a few weeks ago that it's probable that Archippus was the pastor of the church of Colossae. For in Colossians 4.17 it says he received the the same exhortation that Paul gave to Timothy to fulfill his ministry. Uh, likewise um, consider Paul's exhortation to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2 which is really an application, has application to all pastors. He says share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Well he is called a fellow soldier here. And so quite likely he was a pastor of the Church of Colossae. And by Leman likely an elder. But remarkably Paul also includes with Archippus and Apphia and Philemon the church in their house. So, I mean, why would Paul include the church if he's writing a personal letter? It's interesting. Most likely, I think it's because Paul recognized, even as he's writing this letter to Philemon, he understood he was writing scripture as well. That it would have application, and it was teaching doctrine that goes beyond just what Philemon needed to hear, but also what the church as a whole needed to hear, that we ourselves would benefit as we read this letter years later. And, of course, that's why it deserves our attention, why we're choosing to study it and why I'm preaching on it. It's Scripture. So after identifying the authors and audience and offering a blessing for grace and peace upon their lives, Paul identifies what he appreciates about Philemon beginning in verse 4 as he mentions his love and his faith. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. Now I say he appreciates Philemon uh, because uh, of the, the root word of that word appreciate, what appreciate actually means. If you look up that word in the, in the dictionary, it basically means a judgment or an evaluation Uh, It could also mean for something to increase in value. It comes from the Latin word pretium, which means price. And so technically to appreciate something is to recognize its value. And Paul in this letter recognizes three things that, or he lists at least three things that he values about Philemon. And the first thing he mentions is his love and his faith. As you know, faith and love are the two primary evidences that one's a Christian. That's why Christians are called believers. Right? And why Jesus said we'd be known by our love for one another. That's why non-Christians are called unbelievers. Because faith, again, is central to our existence as Christians. We are saved by faith right we're saved from the wrath of god on account of believing the message of what christ has accomplished on our behalf right ephesians 2:8-9 for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith and this is not of your own doing it is the gift of god not a result of works so that no one may boast and we need to recognize this is not just talking about abstract faith just faith in general faith in something no People are saved through faith in Christ, in His work, and in His Word. Faith must have an object, something or someone which one is trusting in, right? When things get bad, when we feel afraid, we want to trust in something. Everybody trusts in something. It could be the police. It could be their own wits. It could be politicians. Or their guns or fists. It could be they just trust their own instincts. Many people just trust their heart. Whatever they, their heart is drawn to, they inherently trust. All right? Everybody trusts something. What defines Christians is that above and beyond anything else, what we trust more than anything else, even more than our own thinking, is God's Word and what Christ has accomplished. We trust in Christ's word and his work on the cross. And and we don't merely believe that Christ died on the cross. We believe that his death fully paid for all of our sins. That merely trusting, believing in that is enough for us to be completely forgiven. And that it's his death alone that makes us right with God and fully right with God. In other words, there's nothing else that we need to do to make ourselves right with God. If we have Christ, we don't need anything else. And so we are made right with God only on account of what He has done, and we just simply accept His gift of forgiveness and righteousness by faith. But faith also includes complete trust in His Word. See, we know that Christ's death is fully sufficient because that is what has been revealed to us in his word. Romans 10:17, go ahead and look at that in your bibles. Romans 10:17 says, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Right? We believe the word of Christ and thus we are saved. When believers hear the word of God, we accept it as the word of God. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. First Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 13. Paul writes, "And we thank God constantly for this that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers." You believe that this is God's word, and therefore you are saved. You believe all of what it has revealed. As John 10 says, Jesus proclaims to his disciples, My sheep hear my voice, and they follow after me. They won't listen to the voice of a stranger. They, they know my word. So faith in the cross and faith in the Bible are two sides of the same coin. Faith in Christ includes both. One can't claim to be a believer and not believe in the authority and inerrancy of the Word of God. Because if they don't believe that God's Word is inerrant, they're trusting in something besides God's Word. And their faith isn't really in God. Nor can a person claim to be a believer and trust in more than the cross. A person can't think that Christ's death is insufficient or that it's sufficient, but then you have to add to it. That's heresy. A believer believes in the authority and inerrancy of the word of God, and they believe in the sufficiency of Christ and his work on the cross. The other primary identifier of a Christian that Paul sees in Philemon is love. And this is both love for Christ and for other believers. As it says in first John four, beloved, love us, love one another for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. The evidence that a person does believe that they really are a Christian. They've really wholly trusted in Christ and not themselves is they will love other people their inclination will be to love one another even as they love themselves. Now, they won't do it perfectly, but that's what that they will be enabled to. They will actually care about other people more than themselves. That's what First John 4 is saying. Love and faith are the evidence that one is a believer. And repeatedly throughout both the Old and New Testaments, we're told that the greatest commandment, it's to love God with all our being and then to love our neighbor as ourself. Love is, is defining for a Christian. When a person is saved, Christ becomes more precious to them than anything else. Now I need to clarify, this is, not, this is love for Christ, not just love for Christianity. Recognize the distinction here because I think a lot of people miss, mistake the two. They love Christianity. They love what Christianity teaches. They love the, the, the traditions of Christianity, like Christmas. Right? Unbelievers love Christmas. Well, it's a Christian tradition. They love even Christmas songs, even though they don't believe a word of what they proclaim. So they love Christianity. They, other people, they love the good things that Christians do. They love the educational facilities that, they, that Christianity has founded, the hospitals, the, 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 the trips to help other people, the, the, the means to, to support the poor and care for the poor. There are many people that love Christianity, but they have no love for Christ. And if they were to examine their heart, they would realize they, they love themselves still more than they love Christ. When a person is saved... Christ becomes more precious to them than anything else. He becomes their greatest treasure. Jesus made this clear in Matthew 10.37. If you'd look at that with me. Matthew 10.37. Jesus said, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of Me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than Me is not worthy of Me. And whoever does not take up his own cross and follow Me is not worthy of Me. Now Jesus isn't saying He doesn't want us to love our spouses, our parents, or our children. He's just saying, if if you're truly a believer, I will be more precious to you than anything else. The great commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. Everything else is an overflow of that. If you love God, for love is from God, you will then love other people. But love for God is supreme. When a person's saved, love for Christ becomes the dominant force in all their decisions. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. In verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died and he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. They're driven by a love for Christ no longer for themselves. And Paul sees in Philemon an example of what this looks like. Philemon, you are a man who is known by your faith in Christ and by your love for other people. That is what defines you. And that's why he gives thanks every time he prays for him. But what does it mean that his faith and love are toward all the saints? Particularly, we understand what love toward the saints would look like. But why does he say his faith is toward all the saints? It's kind of an interesting construction. Well, the word in Greek faith, pistis can also be translated faithfulness as well as faith. And most likely, the reason Paul structures this into this way is to show the intimate connection between faith in Christ and faithfulness towards other believers. Right? Those who have faith become faithful. Faith and love for Christ and its natural overflow in love will express itself towards faithfulness and love toward believers. And John, the Apostle John, emphasizes this multiple times throughout the Gospel of John. Not the Gospel, sorry, his letter, 1 John. One of the main arguments is that genuine faith and love for God will be manifested. In faithfulness and love towards people. And so Paul praises God as he sees these things clearly evident in the life of Philemon. And so it gives him not only great joy, but great confidence that as he writes this letter to Philemon to make this appeal about Onesimus, that Philemon's going to hear it. He's going to receive it. And he's going to consider not just what he wants, but he's going to consider. What is it that the Lord, how would the Lord be most honored in this situation with Onesimus? And notice in particular the connection Paul makes in verse 5 with the word faith and his use of the word in verse 6. He says, I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Now that word sharing is a familiar one the word koinonia, usually translated fellowship. It speaks of the the fact that we have fellowship with one another because we all share in Christ, right? We're all partakers of Christ. And so usually it refers to this sharing in Christ and the benefits that he brings in salvation. But at least three times this word refers to monetary gifts or contributions and i mention that because i think actually that's how paul is using it here and i'll explain why first let's look at the other places where the word koinonia or fellowship refers to a financial gift look first at romans 15:26 For Macedonian and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution or conineon for the poor among the saints of Jerusalem. You could translate it, they've been pleased to make some fellowship for the poor among the saints. But clearly it's referring to the gift that Paul is bringing to the saints in Jerusalem. In reference to the same saints in Jerusalem, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 13, if you flip over there. He says, by their approval of this service, the saints in Jerusalem will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your koinanias for them and for all others. Right? The, the fellowship is being, their, their sharing in Christ is being exhibited in their sharing of their wealth or their contributions. And of course, as a, he's talking about the Macedonians in chapter 8. And they were, they gave out of their poverty, Paul said, but because they shared in the same faith, the same benefits that they had in Christ. Consider also the exhortation made by the author of Hebrews in Hebrews thirteen sixteen. He says, do not neglect to do good and to share coin neos what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God again. Make sure that you share. How do you share by, by recognizing you're all fellows of fellow members of the body of Christ? How do you express your fellowship with one another? Sharing with one another. And of course, this is what we saw in the early church, right? Acts two forty two. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles' And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belonging and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. I mean, you you see the thinking, and this is being explained because it's right thinking. Those who recognize that all they need is Christ, recognize all they have is Christ. And therefore, for the benefit of the rest of the body of Christ. They show their fellowship in their generosity. And I think Paul specifically uses this word because it conveys a recognition of what true faith really looks like. What it understands. What it means that everything we have, we have in Christ. Their financial sharing reflects their shared faith. Now you might recall that one of the major endeavors of Paul in his missionary journeys, was to collect this money for the poor in Jerusalem. There was a famine. They had fallen on hard times. And so as he would go to preach through various regions, he would collect money for those saints. And then he says this regarding his thinking, uh, the fundraising for the church in Jerusalem in Romans fifteen twenty-five, that I think is very telling about Paul's understanding of how this functions. He says, at present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonian, okay, I've been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem, for they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. That's interesting thinking. These Macedonians who are in poverty owe it to the saints in Jerusalem. Why? For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. Right? Our fellowship goes beyond just believing the same thing as what Paul is saying. And the saints of Achaia and Macedonia understood that. And it's noteworthy, given the timeline of Paul's ministry, it is quite possible that Philemon... Was one of the major donors in this endeavor. And I say this not just because Philemon was rich, but also because of all the, among the team of men that he sent out that went with Paul as he contributed and then brought that money to Jerusalem, Acts 20, verse 4, specifically states that Aristarchus was one of the men that went with them. So because Philemon shares the same faith and love for Christ that every other saint possesses, he manifests his shared faith by generously sharing his resources. This is why whenever Paul prays for Philemon, he gives thanks. And he prays that Philemon's generous sharing would become effective. Now, it's possible that, again, by fellowship, he is just referring to the fellowship that we all have in Christ doesn't necessarily mean the contribution. But I think understanding that Paul's referring to contribution, as he did in those other three passages in the New Testament, makes what Paul says here about it, the, the work being the fellowship being effective, a little more clear. The Greek word is energia. It means energy, power. But what's especially noteworthy is this word is only used in the New Testament in reference to supernatural power. So it's not just normal everyday energy. It's divine energy. Paul expects and prays for Philemon's gift to be effective in more than just a material way. But it's supernaturally effective in that it's being performed by the prompting of the Holy Spirit. It's an expression of. Of a spiritual gift. Right? Philemon is working grace in the giving. The spiritual power isn't so much in the money, in the gift itself, it's in the giving of the gift. This suggests that, again, giving is another means of grace. Which makes sense because giving is identified as a spiritual gift in Romans 12:8. And by definition, spiritual gifts are means of grace. Right? We we tend to. When we talk about the major means of grace, the word prayer fellowship, well within fellowship we consider members of the body ministering the spiritual gifts to one another to build one another up. Giving is one of those means of grace, part of being part of the body of Christ, ministering to one another. And because it's being prompted by the Holy Spirit, the giving actually brings about spiritual fruit in the same way that teaching, praying, and serving work to being about spiritual fruit. All right? The Spirit supernaturally uses these natural acts to bring about supernatural fruit. Moreover, 2 Corinthians 8, 6-7, Paul specifically describes the financial giving of the Corinthians as an act of grace. Giving is an act of grace. And I believe he means God's grace. So God actually produces spiritual fruit through the generosity of the saints. And that's a little hard for us to accept because we're very pragmatic as Americans. Like we believe something when we see product. We put our confidence in what we do, what we produce. right? We, we, God uses our gifts to supply buildings for ministry, and the buildings are what bring about the spiritual fruit. Or we use our contributions to the church to, to pay for pastors, and they're the ones that produce spiritual fruit through their preaching. But this is only partially true. They are only one member of the body who possess the Holy Spirit. This was Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 12. Every member of the body has the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit gives gifts to the common good. And he gifts people differently. Some he gifts with supernatural gifts like speaking in tongues in the early church, others he gifts to give generously, others are gifted with leadership, others with teaching others with service and God uses their ministry to produce the fruit it's not so much in the people or in the work itself but God uses those things to the spirit uses those things to produce fruit beyond just what we practically do if i thought that, that you would only have spiritual fruit in your life on the basis of how well i preached I would quit. My confidence isn't how well I preach. Coming up with the right illustration, the right explanation. I believe somehow, as I seek to be faithful, God supernaturally uses my efforts to bring about good. And I think that what Paul's saying with Philemon is he's saying, Philemon, I believe because your giving is clearly being driven by love, God is going to make that giving effective. It's going to actually produce fruit. The question is, do you think that way regarding your giving? Regarding your serving? Are you expecting God to do mighty things? Because if you did, you would, you wouldn't, you'd want to do more. If you love the body of Christ. As we know from 1 Corinthians 13, though, love is the key to exercising our gifts. right? Paul made it very clear in the beginning of 1 Corinthians 13, that chapter on love, we could have the greatest gifts in the world. But if we're not being driven by love, we're just a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. The Spirit uses love, and that's what Paul sees in the life of Philemon. Look at me at verse 7. He says... "I." Derive much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. The third thing Paul appreciates about Philemon is his effect on others. And notice that it's through Philemon's love for others that he has indirectly brought joy and comfort to the Apostle Paul. See, while while Paul is imprisoned, stripped of everything he has, no longer has any freedom. What brings him comfort? What brings him joy in the midst of these awful circumstances is knowing that Philemon is loving the saints. And I think that says way more about the Apostle Paul, actually, than it says about Philemon. But it also tells us what the heart of Christian leaders should be. That they're not so much concerned about their own circumstances as they are care- that the people they love are being cared for. His heart is fully bound up in the condition of others. It reminds me of what the Apostle John wrote when he, in uh, his third letter, Third John. He said, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Like what brought the Apostle John... Comfort just knowing the saints that he knew are walking in the truth. What brought Paul comfort was just knowing the saints are being cared for. It's just like a mother finds no greater joy than knowing that her children are safe, that they're secure, things are going well. Likewise, that's the heart of a good shepherd. And I, I mention that partially because it's, Decisions need to be made in our church. I want you to know that the primary question that I ask and, and that, that I hope the elder, as we have other elders come in that they're asking is what, it not, what is it that we want to do? Not what is it that I want to do? But what is in the best interest of the people of this church? How can we help people grow spiritually? That's the driving question. And so as I think about bringing on other elders or hiring additional staff, acquiring church buildings, times of services, planning for retreats and conferences, and all the rest. The, this question is the modus operandi. Right? What, or operandus, to make it singular, what is in the best interest? What, how can we best care for the people that God has brought together as this church? And that was what was clearly driving the Apostle Paul. Notice that He's been brought comfort because Philemon has refreshed the hearts of the saints. That word refresh is very unique. It actually means to give rest, to give peace. So think about like a a rubber band that's just full of tension as it's pulled together. Philemon relaxes it. As as saints feel tension and fear and strife, Philemon in his fellowship, his what I think, generosity is being implied there. He has refreshed them. He's put them at ease. They're not anxious because their needs have been provided for. It's the same word that's actually used by Jesus when He says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, Come to Me, all you who, are, who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Like Jesus promised there that He would give rest to His saints. Those who come to him. Notice that Philemon is bringing that rest to the saints through his care for them. Jesus uses, we're his hands and feet. You you hear that phrase being used. Well, Just what it's saying is just God uses the body of Christ. It's the body of Christ to minister to the members of the body of Christ. Jesus ministers to us. His peace through one another. And Paul is just recognizing, Philemon, you've done what Jesus has promised. And that is, that is some of the, one of the most precious promises in all of Scripture. Songs have been written about it. People have memorized it. It's what gets them through the darkest times. And Paul is saying, Philemon, you were God's man for those saints at that moment. You refresh the hearts just as Christ had promised He would. And Christ made it very clear that our love for him would be primarily reflected in how we cared for other people's needs, particularly one another's needs. Matthew 25. The righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When do we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when do we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of my brothers, you did it to me. We show our love for Christ in how we treat one another. And Christ shows his love for us likewise in how we treat for one another as we treat one another in love. So what is your effect on others? How should the body of Christ appreciate or value you? Your part within it. Although he's not widely known today, Robert Chapman was one of the most widely respected pastors Of the 19th century. His caring and humble attitude had a marked impact on the lives of men such as J. Hudson Taylor, George Mueller, and Charles Spurgeon. In fact, all those men considered Chapman to be a giant among them. Spurgeon himself actually stated that Robert Chapman was the saintliest man that he knew. The holiest man that he knew. And Spurgeon knew a lot of people. Chapman, although he was born into a wealthy and prestigious family, chose to give up all that wealth in order to serve the needs of the poorest of the poor. So think giving up Downton Abbey to go live in a Charles Dickens novel, Hard Times. And the reason he did so is because he believed that seeing Christ's love in a person who loved them could be more readily could could more readily cause belief in the gospel if they saw people Christ loving them through Chapman then they would more readily receive what Chapman is trying to help them trust in and because of his remarkable example of living out Christian love Chapman's biography is actually one of the books that I asked the elder candidates to read because we want to cultivate men like this. We want the leadership in this church to be men defined by love. And I'll share one of the stories from his biography. A friend of his told this story when he and Chapman were leaving a church conference. But they discovered as they were leaving that they actually had no money amongst them for the train fare home. And this is because Chapman had been given some money at the conference for this purpose, but he came across somebody that he thought needed the money more than he did. So he gave it away. And so as they're walking to the train station, his friend asked Chapman, you know, just reminds him that they have no money. To which Chapman replied, well, to whom does the money belong? And the cattle upon a thousand hills. He's quoting Psalm 50 when they reached the station, a man on an arriving train recognized Chapman. He hurried over to him and then handed him a five-pound note. I don't know what the equivalence would be today, but, I don't know, 50 bucks or something. And he said, I had this in my pocket for some time, and I've been meaning to give it to you. And I just saw you, and so here you go. He got back on his train and then left. So after a moment, Chapman then asked his companion again, Brother, to whom does the money belong? And notice that Chapman's generosity was, was tied to his faith and his loving God. He knew he could give money away because God would provide all his needs. And if God didn't provide, then that's one of his needs. I get the impression from Paul's description of Philemon in these verses that he was a man of similar convictions as Robert Chapman which is why Paul appreciated Philemon so much. Let's pray. Father, we don't want to just admire Philemon or the Apostle Paul or Robert Chapman or Charles Spurgeon or any other saint. Lord, we want to be like these men and women. In fact, Lord, we want to be like You. And so I pray that You would conform us into Your likeness. And conform our church into Your likeness. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. We come now to the time of communion where we celebrate the fellowship that we have with Christ.